Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-8. through 8. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So we are uh, launching into this uh, new series, four-part series we are calling Counterculture, as we take a look at the both of the letters to the Thessalonians. Paul wrote these letters, both of them very um, quick to one to another, back to back. And in these passages of Scripture, we find um, this calling and really this encouragement about the fact that we go against the culture um, as believers in Christ. We cannot help but to be countercultural. And um, hopefully this will kind of unfold um, throughout the next four times together um, in terms of what does it mean? Because uh, um, I'm not really calling or encouraging us to take on some sort of fight in the streets, um, like maybe you comes to your mind when you think of the counterculture revolution of the 60s, where you're out there in a very vocal way. But I want to take a look at the definition of counterculture and see how this relates to the life and the way that Christ leads us and guides us through this life as followers of His. Um, the definition of counterculture is a way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norms. So you and I, we live in a social norm. We, um, your social norm may have some uniquenesses than my social norm um, or our social norm here in Rochester may be different from someone who lives in a large city or someone who lives uh, you know, in another part of our country. But social norms, um, we all have them and we all live among them and we call it our culture. And as a Christ follower, we cannot help but to feel Christ's bidding um, that within our hearts, within our attitudes, within our thought processes, it can't help but to be somewhat counter to the cultural or the social norms around us. And so what we're going to find here is Paul talking to the Thessalonians about how living for Christ is going to feel counter-cultural. Um, in this first segment, this first message, we're going to be in first, first Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We're going to be in all three of the first chapters there. And um, we're going to find two key words that end up coming through, um, at least thoughts. One is the word affliction. 
and the other is the word encouragement. Both of these words are present in the countercultural experience as believers. Um, you might recall, or you've seen maybe on someone's car, the little fish symbol. Um, that is the uh, a, a popular Christian symbol identifying the person who is driving the car as a follower of Christ. Well, that little fish symbol that you've seen goes all the way back to first century Christians. And it was a symbol that was adopted as a, um, an, an identifying mark um, for those who had become followers of Christ. And um, it was used for a couple different things. One is, you know, there was a lot of references in the Bible and Jesus's ministry to fish, being fishers of men, um, the miracles that took place when Jesus fed a crowd with the five loaves and the two fish. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of references to fish. And um, also, this, the symbol that would be very similar, um, fish symbols and stuff, would have been also popular in the day, even in the Roman culture, the Greek culture. It wasn't a, a crazy symbol. Like, if they, for instance, if Christians had decided to identify themselves only with a cross, well, that would have been quite an identifying feature. But the fish symbol actually, in some ways, kind of blended in and kind of slid under the radar. And when there was quite a bit of persecution going on throughout the centuries, but especially especially in the first century, like we're going to be talking about today, there would have been this need at times to know if you could um, trust or identify a fellow believer. And so um, that fish symbol is made up of two marks. One is goes this way and the other one connects at the mouth and comes this way and creates the other tail. And so sometimes the believers, in order to try to test if someone was indeed a follower of Christ, would in some way, make one of those marks and wait to see if the other person finished the mark off and do the other half of the fish. And if they did, they knew that they understood one another and that they both were part of the counterculture and that they could easily or trust to identify themselves as followers of Christ. Well, the reason that that was a big deal was because the persecution was so strong. And I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where you know that pretty much everyone around you probably does not identify with your faith um, or your moral code or your, um, you know, your the fact that you follow with Christ. But when you do come in contact with someone that is indeed a believer, um, there's this instant connection and kinship. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's a freedom to talk about things maybe in a way that you weren't free before. And so that even happens even in today's culture, today's world, yours and mine, even in a time when persecution doesn't look quite as strong as it did in Paul's day when he's writing to the Thessalonians, there's a level of persecution or wondering how much you can put yourself out there um, to connect and talk about um, the things of the faith and the things of the Bible. Well, anyway, we're going to look at these two different words, affliction and encouragement, and how they come out in this letter to the Thessalonians. And we're going to play with these words a little bit because these words come from a few different angles, like what is he meaning or what is the, you know, who's doing the encouragement or who's doing the afflicting or um, who's experiencing or receiving them. So we're going to talk about that with four different thoughts as we look at the scripture today. The first is going to be this thought afflicted by the word, afflicted by the word. Um, let's read in first Thessalonians one. Verses 6 through 10, when it says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. 
with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols, and to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, from whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, so in here we find this um, phrase, or this word afflicted, and I want to read it again. It's verse 6 when it says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Here we find that Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they received the word in affliction. Well, that's a weird thought. What are we talking about here? Well, the word affliction in this passage of Scripture is the Greek word thlipsis. Um, if I'm saying that correct, I'm not sure. Um, but it, it means this, pressure used of a narrow place that hems someone in. Tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined or restricted without options. Compression, tribulation, carries the challenge of coping with the internal pressure of a tribulation, especially when feeling there is no way of escape or hemmed in. Are you getting an idea of this word affliction? It's almost this, inter this internal conflict where you feel trapped. Now, obviously, it could come from exterior pressures that are coming in you, social or, you know, laws that are coming in on you. But there was this internal pressure or affliction that Paul is saying that the Thessalonians were in when they received the word. The following verses that I'm going to read to you give a, a, a little bit of this idea that affliction, which is really a negative sounding word, it sounds like something none of us want to experience, being afflicted um, or having this internal pressure of feeling trapped. These, this isn't a pleasant feel, but we find that this concept of being afflicted can have a positive impact on a person um, and is often maybe used by God in a person's life. Um, Let's read a few of these verses. Um, one is in Psalms 119, um, verse 67, when it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So here we find the psalmist is saying that um, before they were afflicted, they were just doing their own thing. But the affliction that they experienced, now they keep God's word. This affliction was used to bring this person to God. Um, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered, again, the Lord identifying with affliction, since the Lord suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. This mind of suffering. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Here we find this idea that suffering or affliction actually will keep a person walking down the straight and narrow in their life, not giving in to the lust of the flesh. We find in Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Here we find this proverb saying, welcome in the wounds of a friend. Welcome in the rebuke. Welcome the affliction because in it comes life and righteousness. The affliction. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So if it, right here, it's saying that if, if you don't, if you want to cripple your kids, don't correct them, don't discipline them, don't administer a spanking when they need it. And that is a sure thing to spoil them and ruin them and have them walking in a way away from God. But the, the Discipline or the affliction, if you will, is what helps train a child in the way they should go. A piece of love is allowing those that you love to feel the affliction that sin brings. If we try to protect our kids or protect the people within our care constantly from ever feeling the consequences of their poor decisions, they don't learn from them and you end up crippling them in the future if they don't ever feel their the consequences for their actions. So we find here, going back to our original scripture, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. So what we find is that, that Paul is talking about the Thessalonians receive God's word in affliction, in, in this feeling of being trapped, in this uncomfortable spot um, it's where they discovered and found Christ. Now, whether the Thessalonians were experiencing affliction when the word of God showed up in their life or because the word of God showed up in the life makes no difference. The affliction brought the readiness for salvation. And did you notice that it also brought the joy of the Holy Spirit? The affliction brought salvation and it brought the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, if it is indeed the fact that the affliction, this feeling of being trapped or this uncomfortable situation, when the word came, like they were in this position of affliction and then the word of God came, it's a, it's a means that God was using to prepare the soil of their heart. They were in this place where they needed a savior. They needed salvation. This affliction prepared them for the word to show up in their life. Or if they're talking about the affliction because the word came, that means that they're walking through their life. They're not feeling anything. And suddenly the word of God comes and then this affliction sets in. What is, what's happening here is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the discipline of the father. So a lot of times when the kids are running through the house and they're not doing the right thing and you've told them time and time again and finally, all right, they're going to get, you know, a little spanking um, just to get their attention and remind them that the rules need to be followed or whatever. Um, they weren't afflicted in any way until all of a sudden the word showed up and convicted them of their wrong behavior. Either way, the word of God can sometimes come in the form of affliction. Have you ever been cut to the heart when you realized or came face to face with your own wrongdoing and suddenly that remorse, that conviction, that, oh, that is me. All of a sudden, all arrows are pointed at you. 
um, it is, uh, it's a tough thing to deal with, but that is the love of God. That if we are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives that feels a bit uncomfortable, that feels a bit like affliction, know that that's the love of God working in your life. So we find that this is the truth of the Thessalonians when they discovered the Word of God and when they accepted it. We also find Paul's going to talk about in the second chapter about being afflicted by others. First one was afflicted by the Word. What about when you are afflicted by others? Um, let's read um, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So here we find here that the uh, Thessalonians had received the word of God. They had become believers. And now Paul is talking to them about the fact that they are enduring a persecution. They are suffering the same things that Jesus had experienced when he was crucified. They are experiencing the same thing that the prophets of the Old Testament had experienced when they were martyred for their faith, a lot of them. They're experiencing the same thing that um, they, you know, Paul and Silas and some of these forerunners these first proclaimers of the gospel experienced when they were, um, you know, beaten and flogged and, you know, stoned nearly to death. Um, they say you're experiencing the same thing. So here we find Paul is calling out the fact that they are being afflicted by others for the sake of the gospel persecution. Now, the first affliction that Paul referenced had to do with salvation by the word, affliction by the word. This is a reference that you and I can expect as believers, this affliction that can come from others, persecution. Now, as Christ followers, there will be some hills that we are called to die on. Some things that you will be um, convicted in your heart to take a stand for. Things that God does indeed bid every single one of us to. Hills to die on. Um, now, as Americans or as married people or as employers or employees or as parents, there may be other hills that you deem worthy to die on too. Um, we've got, you know, sometimes we can struggle those Christians to distinguish between the two. What are the hills that Christ is calling me to die on? And what are the hills that my relationships or my standing or my citizenship is calling me to die on? And there is a difference. Um, and it's very important that we know the difference that when we are determining to go die on a hill for some cause that we realize if it's if it's a cause that Christ is calling us to die for, or if it's a cause that um, my own integrity or my own conviction or my own personality or my own interests are calling me to maybe choose to die for. 
Here's some examples of ordinary life and relational hills that you might decide that it's worth me dying on. Maybe it's an argument that you need to make sure that you get your point across, um, whether it's to a spouse or to someone else. This, this argument's worth me really going to bat for and dying for, you know, dying in a you know, in a theoretical sense. Um, maybe uh, it's a rule that you're trying to impress upon your children, like no matter what, they need to follow this rule. Maybe it's for a safety for, uh, or for some other reason. Um, maybe there's a right that you feel is very important for you to stand for. Uh, maybe there's a protest for you to participate in and risk going to jail over. This is a hill for you that's worth dying for. All of these things I mentioned and many, many more, these hills carry some level of risk and you've got to determine the cost benefit ratio and determine if it's worth your risk to go fight and die on that hill. Um, I think of a, uh, a, a, a good friend of mine that um, watched their daughter, teenage daughter turning into an adult daughter, um, begin to, you know, they, they went to church, they raised her in the youth group, all that kind of stuff. And she had decided to experiment and decide to choose a lifestyle that was contrary to their heart, their desire for her, contrary to God's word. Um, she had entered into a girlfriend, girlfriend relationship. And I'd watched other people whose, you know, kids kind of went down a road similar to that. And it's very difficult to know what to do um, as a Christian parent, you know, going to church every week. Um, everyone in the church loves your kids and they see a lifestyle like this emerge. And a lot of times parents will maybe turn their back on their kids or say that special person in their life is not welcome in their home or whatever they decide to do. They kind of ostracize that situation from themselves. And I understand that it's a very difficult thing to know how to navigate it. But my friends here that I'm talking about decided that that hill wasn't worth dying for, and they decided to, instead of rejecting this in their daughter's life, they decided to be accepting of them. And so they, you know, did welcome this girlfriend into the home and, and uh, you know, just tried to treat them like normal people because they are normal people. And they ended up watching this relationship dissolve in not too long a time. And they came out of it with a relationship with their daughter that maybe other Christian parents I watched do this in, or do something in opposite than that, that those relationships were broken. And I'm just, just pointing out the story that it's very important that we prayerfully to try to determine what hills are worth dying on. So when we look at the hills that Christ would call us to die on, what are some of those standards? What, how, what, do we, what filter do we lay over to say this is a hill worth dying on or going to bat for and, and risking it all for? Well, the first one is that the hill that maintains a relationship and doesn't destroy the relationship is a great filter because God wants us in relationship with people so that we have an opportunity to invest and transform lives around us. And so if you're thinking about dying on a hill that for sure is going to break off a relationship, you might want to reconsider that one. Another hill that, uh, that standard for determining what hills to die on is, will this hill communicate the gospel? 
the good news. And friends, we need to be willing to die on those hills. We need to be willing to um, share the good news of Jesus Christ and to say that's a hill that I'm that's worth taking the risk for. So the persecutors of the Thessalonians that Paul's talking about shows up here. And in verse 15, 16, um, we find that, you know, they were describing these people that are persecuting the Thessalonians, and it says that they were forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Now, that is, that is one where the persecutor is crossing the line, and it's worth you deciding, I am going to take a stand on that hill and maybe die for. The hills that we're called to die on are the ones that bring about life and bring about eternal life and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we can't be quick to jump on hills to die on them if it's going to sever our relationships with the people that we know and love and are called to. And so we need to really think carefully about how we deal with the persecution in our lives and what hills are worth dying for. So in the midst of our affliction or hill dying, we find this vitally important gift, which is that other word I already mentioned, and that's the word of encouragement. We've got the word of affliction, and we've got the word of encouragement. And both of these words are counterculture. No one likes the affliction. Everyone tries to do everything they can to avoid any uncomfortable circumstances. And all, we also find that encouragement is somewhat counterculture. Um, and we find that Paul, as we jump into 1 Thessalonians 3, is going to bring out this idea to be encouraged by others. Encouraged by others. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. So here we find in this uh, portion of scripture that Paul sends his co-worker and friend Timothy to the Thessalonians to encourage them in their affliction. How important is it that we receive encouragement when we are feeling the affliction and the um, persecution and the times when our faith feels futile and it feels like we're on a hill that we're trying to figure out if it's worth dying on, all of this stuff, how important encouragement is. And Paul recognized this and sends Timothy to the Thessalonians. One of the key reasons to be connected to your church family is the sake of encouragement, that you would be encouraged. We come together once a week. We come together twice a week so that we can build one another up, so that we can be encouraged. And whether you're doing the encouraging or you're receiving the encouragement, it's what the church is called to do. It's so important. You know what you have the opportunity to do? You have the opportunity to initiate encouragement. Even if no one else is encouraging you, even if you feel like no one else is reaching out to you, I want to challenge you to initiate encouragement, a note of encouragement. 
Invite someone to coffee, a coffee of encouragement. Invite someone over to your home for a meal of encouragement. Um, anything that would bring people together to talk about the faith, to talk about life, and to hopefully deposit encouragement one to another. Encouragement is a bit of a countercultural experience. Not many think to do it. Pretty much everyone's focused on what they need. And so when you come across someone who is an encouragement, someone who encourages someone who knows how to give a compliment or pick someone up when they're down, someone who knows how to lend an ear and ask the right questions, this stuff is, is really unusual. And when you're around a person like that, you want to be around them. You want to hang out with them. Encouragement is vital. And if you would decide, I'm going to initiate encouragement in the people around me, you are going to not only, you're, you're going to be receiving encouragement yourself because that's what it invites. It invites others to join you in life because there's plenty of affliction. There's plenty of affliction going around. Life is bringing affliction and our faith even brings on affliction from time to time. And so when we can get around others and encourage one another, it makes all the difference in the world. And then we find here, as we take a look at verses 6 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians 3, is we find afflicted and encouraged for others. We are inflicted and we are encouraged for the sake of others. Um, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, and we also to see you. Verse 7, here's the key. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So Paul is talking about his own experience when he thinks about the Thessalonians. The affliction that they've gone through and the fact that they have stood the test of, of persecution. You see, when he wrote this letter, he had, he had already sent Timothy to go check out and just make sure that the church was doing fine, that they were enduring the affliction and the persecution. Timothy comes back to Paul and he's got this good report that yes, indeed, there is persecution. They are afflicted, but they are standing strong. And that standing strong turns into a source of encouragement even for Paul. You see, we accept affliction and the encouragement for the sake of other people. When we are afflicted and when we are encouraged, this gives us the strength and the experience, the wisdom, the place in life to be able to be a blessing and an encouragement to others when they are going through affliction. And we follow in the footsteps of Jesus when we do this. Jesus understood the power of affliction and the power of encouragement and how those go together and how it's so countercultural. You see, when I'm going to read a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment, but when the experience of affliction gets combined with encouragement and the experience that all that brings, it, it strengthens the church. It, it, it creates this countercultural, this strength to go against the flow even while you're in the flow. Even when you're in the flow of community and you're out amongst your friends and you're out there doing life and you're on, on the job place or you're visiting family, wherever it is, you're doing life and you feel like you're a fish swimming upstream and everyone else is heading downstream 
stream and you just feel that way, it is the affliction and the encouragement of the church that comes together that makes you strong to be different. And here we find in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, and just to give you a little background, Hebrews 11 has been filled with this long line of people from the Old Testament and their little brief story about how their faith was, was made strong most of the, every time in the middle of affliction is what's gone on. And so it says here, therefore, since we are surrounded by this huge crowd of this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here we find this calling to follow Jesus who endured the most extreme persecution one could ever experience, all of the sins of the world laid upon him, what affliction, what entrapment he must have felt. And here, we, he said he did it for the joy set before him. The encouragement that was to come, the encouragement from his father, all that was involved with this major affliction. And we are called to the same level of countercultural experience that we call Christianity, that we are called to receive the affliction of life, the entrapments, all the difficulties that come, whether it's by God's word upon our lives when we're trying to stand up against temptation, whether it's the persecution that comes as we are trying to um, share the good news of the gospel to other people. Um, however the affliction comes, we endure it, but we don't do it alone. We do it with the encouragement of the body of Christ. We do it with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. We do it with the encouragement that we are following God Himself, Jesus Christ, into eternal life. And that's a blessing. That's the joy and the blessing that you and I get to be. This is countercultural. People are not welcoming um, infliction. They're not affliction. They're not welcoming pain. They're not welcoming difficulties. And yet we are called to it. It's a hill worth dying on because in then we have that maturity to love other people. So I want to pray, and I don't know how this message has impacted you. I know there's some complicated concepts here, but I want for you to contemplate the affliction that maybe you're experiencing right now. Um, maybe it's a conviction of your heart, or maybe it's a, a difficulty coming on you that someone's putting upon you, or something like that. And I want for you to find out how God wants to use that affliction in your life. Would you offer it to Him? Would you offer that affliction, and would you allow it to be used to turn your eyes to Him. And also I'd like for you to consider is, if you are needing encouragement today, consider how you can initiate that. And it's probably going to entail you encouraging someone else, opening up a relationship, opening up a friendship within the body of Christ so that mutual encouragement would come. And it would take you laying down your pride and saying, boy, I want to encourage someone right now, really wanting the best for them in their life. That's also countercultural. Um, so let's just pray. Lord, I just pray right now for each and every one, Lord, who's listening today that you would 
see them in the midst of their affliction. Um, Paul was very clear all throughout the first couple chapters of Thessalonians, Lord, that affliction is real. And Lord, somehow it doesn't seem to be something to be avoided, but something to be embraced. Somehow it's something to be accepted in our Christian experience that um, will strengthen us and will cause us to become a blessing to others. And I pray today that the affliction that some of my friends might be experiencing, Lord God, that they would be able to offer that to you, turn to you, and Lord, um, somehow that would be leveraged into um, eternal life. It would be leveraged into um, their testimony, Lord, of how you've worked in their life. And Lord God, I pray that the other piece of this countercultural experience would be encouragement. And Lord, that we would look for ways to encourage others, that we would seek connection in the body of Christ, that we could encourage one another, that we would be surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, those, O oh Lord, who've been afflicted and have endured and have lived a life of faith. Lord God, let that be our testimony. And so, Lord, I bless your church today. I bless, Lord, each and every one that's here. Walk with them as they seek to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.